Hello, health investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Emily Anthes. Emily is a science journalist and author. Her new book, The Great Indoors, The Surprising Science of How Buildings Shape Our Behavior, Health, and Happiness, was published in June. Emily's work has also appeared in The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Wired, Nature, Slate, Business Week, and elsewhere. Emily has a master's degree in science writing from MIT and a bachelor's degree in the history of science and medicine from Yale, where she also studied creative writing. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. In the episode, Emily shares practical tips for making your home and home office more desirable and productive, how schools, prisons, hospitals, and large offices can improve their spaces, fascinating facts about your unique home biome, and more. Real quick, I want to share an Apple podcast review with you. Dawn Juan 33 rated the Health Investment Podcast five stars and wrote, The Health Investment is my go-to podcast for all things health-related. There are three things in particular that keep me coming back to listen. One, the variety. Two, Brooke's realistic-slash-achievable approach to a healthy lifestyle. And three, no agenda is being pushed. I appreciate that Brooke expresses a genuine interest in learning the objective truth about various health-related topics. I find this approach much more appealing than the salesy, in-your-face approach a lot of other health professionals take. Great work all around. Keep it up. Wow. Thank you so much for your thorough, thoughtful review. I truly, truly appreciate it. If you have enjoyed what you've heard so far on the Health Investment Podcast, I'd be so grateful if you could take five minutes of your time to leave a review yourself. Visit thehealthinvestment.com slash review and follow the simple, easy steps. Thank you so, so much in advance for your feedback. And now it's time to hear from Emily. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing, you deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing, there are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm gonna share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness because I wanna help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm super excited to talk about this topic that I've never spoken about to anyone on the show before. Uh, So I can't wait to just hear all of your knowledge and to hear all about your book. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Can you start by just sharing your story and specifically what led you to become a journalist? 
Sure. It's a bit of a, a long and winding story, but the, the short version of it is, so I'm a science journalist and I initially thought I was going to be a scientist. That was what I was interested in. And that's what I started to study in college, but slowly realized that I was really interested in the ideas of science, but I wasn't really good at the actual laboratory practice, nor did I think I had the right temperament for it. And I'd always been interested in, in journalism as well, sort of more as a side hobby or interest. Uh, both of my parents are journalists, so I'd sort of grown up in that world. And one day realized that I could write about science instead of actually doing it. And it's been off to the races from there. Oh, wow. That's really cool. And how cool that your parents were both journalists as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you always been interested in environment and how that shapes who we are? Or did you initially have different interests? You know, my interests are a little bit all over the place, which is actually one of the things that drove me towards journalism instead of science proper was I didn't think I could really narrow in on a small important but small, you know, question to devote my career to. Whereas in journalism, I get to write about all sorts of different topics. I am interested in health related stories mostly, but I define that really broadly. So I write about, you know, infectious disease and aging and psychology and anything that really touches on human health is sort of my general beat. Got it. And then what initially sparked your desire to write an entire book about how indoor environments affect our health? Yeah, well, so that is, that was sparked by a couple of things. So, you know, as I admit uh, right up front in the book, I am indoorsy. I have always been indoorsy. I was an indoor kid and I'm an indoor adult, you know, give me a, a book and a blanket and a mug of tea. And, you know, that's my idea of a great night. But you know, because I'm a science journalist, I also spend a lot of time just browsing journals that are uh, journal articles that are coming out and new studies that are being published. And about a decade ago, I started noticing a number of studies that were being done on what sometimes called the indoor microbiome. So essentially, scientists were going into all sorts of buildings, homes, offices, schools, and collecting samples of dust, and then sequencing all the DNA it contained. And by doing that, they were able to generate this long list of all these microorganisms that were in the dust in our building. And the findings just astonished me sort of in their own right. You know, the one study I still think about is that the average American home has something like 2,000 different species of microbes in it. But it also sparked this shift in me where I began to realize like, oh, there's a lot more going on, even in my small apartment, than I ever really thought about. And what else is happening in these spaces that we don't appreciate, but that could be really affecting our lives. So that became the spark for a much broader exploration of, of indoor spaces. Mm. I love your description of yourself as indoorsy. I've never heard that term before, but I 100% relate to that. Yeah, it's a useful term. <laughs> I like it a lot. And I think we were just talking off air about how I used to live in New York City and you live in Brooklyn. And so I think that's kind of the perfect city to be more indoorsy. I live in Northern California now mm -hmm. and everybody 
to be outdoorsy and <laughs> like why is everybody hiking all the time what is going on out here yeah but I love that. I love yeah same I could just cuddle up with a blanket and a book any old day and just be quite content um so now I'm even more excited to learn how my indoor environment is shaping me um I guess I'd love to just kind of start touching on different aspects of your research Can you sort of dive into how our indoor spaces affect us? Let's maybe tackle mentally first or emotionally. Sure. Well, so the the big overarching, I guess, introduction to this is that our indoor spaces affect nearly every aspect of our lives in often profound and surprising ways. So that's just important to keep in mind that nearly anything you could ask about, there would be an indoor connection. But if we focus on things like mental health and mood and emotion, for instance, we know one thing that has a really big impact on our moods is daylight. And there's a well-documented connection now that the more daylight we get and the brighter light we're exposed to, the happier we are, the, the better our moods are. Um, and there's still not a really clear definitive explanation for this link. Um, but we do know, for instance, there are studies that show that light exposure can boost the production of serotonin in the brain, which has obviously a, a well-known connection to our mood. Um, so that's one leading possibility. But daylight and ample exposure to sunlight throughout the day is, is a known mood booster. Hmm. So even if you're in a small space, just trying to get as much sunlight in as possible could be helpful? Absolutely. And the other thing we know about light is that it's particularly important in the mornings because natural light and daylight is what helps keep our circadian rhythms actually you know, tied to the chronological day, to what the sun is doing. And the thing that really tells our bodies and our brains that morning is here is a burst of that light exposure in the mornings. So one thing I've been suggesting to people in this time when we're all sort of maybe working out of makeshift offices in our homes is if there's a place in your home or workspace that gets a lot of light in the morning, um, it might be good to consider starting your workday there and, and make sure you get that dose of light uh, right to start your off the bat to start your day. Hmm. Is light enough or is it also important to get fresh air if possible? Oh, yeah. So one interesting lesson and maybe ironic lesson from the book is that it turns out that one of the best things we can do to create a healthy indoor environment is to find ways to bring in elements of the outdoor environment. Um, So daylight, which we just talked about, is one of them. uh, But as you mentioned, fresh air is another example. And so is nature. So we can take those one at a time, but we know that fresh air is important for our physical health. That's something that maybe people are thinking about a little bit more right now with the pandemic and bringing in more fresh air from the outdoors is likely to sort of disperse and dilute any viral particles that that might be hanging around. It also can disperse and dilute indoor air pollution, um, which is a health concern that is getting increasing recognition. And the interesting thing is that indoor air quality also affects our cognition. So there have been studies that show that in spaces that are poorly ventilated or 
that get crowded, like if you think about a conference room or maybe a lecture hall, we actually breathe out enough carbon dioxide to impair people's thinking. And so studies also show that if you increase ventilation rates and bring in more fresh air, you can actually improve our performance on cognitive tasks. So fresh air is another really important component of of a healthy indoor space. What if somebody is living in a city, New York, for example, and they're thinking that the fresh air isn't all that fresh? Is it still just good to get fresh air, even if it's maybe in a city like LA and New York, or then would you want to get an air purifier or something? Well, air purifiers can't hurt. And so like there's, you know, if it's something you're concerned about in your city, um, I would recommend looking into it. But I think there's actually a bit of a misconception these days about indoor versus outdoor air quality. And in most places in the U.S., under normal circumstances, the outdoor air is cleaner than the indoor air. There's been some interesting research showing that, you know, because outdoor air quality has improved so much over the last few decades, and that's largely due to federal regulations that, you know, uh, regulate how much of various different pollutants cars can emit and, and other sorts of things, that outdoor air, even in urban areas, has gotten much, much better. But our indoor air is unregulated and our belongings and personal care products and furniture and the materials in our homes, all of those things generate pollutants. And so a lot of us are exposed to more air pollution indoors than outdoors. Hmm. So the, the caveat to that, of course, is, you know, you're in California. If it's something like the middle of wildfire season, then yes, you're not going to want to bring in fresh air. So an element of of judgment is involved. But just on a normal day, most places, you're probably going to be better off bringing in air from outside. Hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. I've never thought about that of indoor air being unregulated. That's kind of a cool way to sort of think about it. And yeah, I like that idea of getting as much ventilation as possible. You mentioned nature, so bringing nature into the indoors. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, so the interesting thing about the research on nature is it shows that almost any kind of nature exposure is good for us. And so I guess I'll back up and say that the benefits of nature are really broad and really significant. It's been very well documented in the literature. But so exposure to nature, to just give a few examples, can reduce stress reduce pain, boost our immune system, boost our attention, focus and productivity. It can reduce mortality rates in hospital patients. I mean, the the benefits are just astounding. But how we define nature almost doesn't matter, it seems like, based on, on the studies I've seen. So a lot of the classic studies involve people who have views of natural landscapes out the window. And so we know that that's, if you're lucky enough to live in a place where you're surrounded by nature or have huge windows that look out into trees or a mountain range or anything like that, that can give, confer all of those benefits. But even if you don't, there are other things you can do. So we know that bringing in houseplants can have some of the same benefits. So can even just images of nature. So photos of natural landscapes on the wall or in your cubicle. 
And there's even some work now that suggests that nature sounds. So like listening to birdsong or a babbling brook can have some of those same stress alleviating benefits as, as actually being out in nature. Mm. Uh, we have a bunch of plants that I'm kind of obsessed with in my mm-hmm. apartment and I love taking care of them, but you know, that's kind of interesting to think about. I never really thought that I was bringing nature in, but then when you were talking about having a picture of nature, I was just thinking again, back to my New York city roots. We have this huge like uh, image hanging right when you walk in of New York City streets. So it's like some people might be bringing in, you know, their pictures of their hikes or whatever, but we've been bringing in cityscapes. So maybe I should, I could work better on maybe bringing in more nature and less city to the apartment, but at least we have the plants going for us. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's an interesting opening to, to say something else, which is maybe another caveat, which is that we know that nature is really powerful and has all sorts of benefits, but there's still a lot of outstanding questions. Like for instance, the dose, Mm. like, is it enough that you have those house plants? Like, are you already maximizing Mm. your, your nature benefits? You very well could be maybe bringing in photos wouldn't add anything on top of that, but maybe it would. And so those are the sorts of the more granular questions that, that still need to be answered. And um, there's a lot left to learn. Right. I'm thinking back to when you were talking about the natural light. So if mm-hmm. somebody doesn't have natural light, again, I'm thinking of my old apartment in New York City. I barely had any at all. Have you done any research or anything about those light machines that kind of mimic natural light? Can that be helpful? Yeah. So there are a couple of things that people can do or consider doing. And I should say that so light therapy, which I'll talk about in a second, is considered a medical intervention. So I can't formally recommend it to people, but there is evidence behind it. So if it's something that sounds intriguing or interesting, I'd encourage listeners to to talk about it with their doctors. But light therapy is something that was initially developed and tested in populations of people who are suffering from like seasonal affective depression. And so there are light therapy lamps that give out these bursts of, of high intensity light. And again, because of what we know about how important morning exposure is typically the recommendation is, you know, to sit in front of these lamps for, you know, 20 minutes or some period of time in the mornings. And there have been studies that show that that can really help people's moods. And increasingly research is expanding out from people who have seasonal affective depression to other sorts of populations. And there's some research to suggest that it can be helpful to a wider range of people. Um, Again, I'd encourage people to to talk to their doctors about that. The other interesting development we've seen is what's sometimes called circadian lighting. And some of this has been enabled by sort of the new smart home technology we have that allows us to really fine tune our indoor environments. But this kind of lighting is essentially a lighting scheme that's designed to mimic the way that the quality and the intensity of natural light varies over the course of a day. So these will be bulbs that are programmed to change as the day goes on. So maybe in the morning they put out really bright light that's on the sort of cooler, bluer end of the spectrum, which is what we know is is important for setting our clocks in the morning. And then as the day goes on, and evening approaches, they get dimmer and put out warmer, more amber-colored light, which is less likely to interfere with our sleep. 
Um, so there's now starting to be some studies on these sorts of lighting schemes, suggesting that they can be helpful. And this is also a really accessible intervention. I mean, you can go online or, or to a, a store and buy some of these circadian bulbs right now. They're not hugely expensive. Hmm. And you can just put those into any regular old light fixture? I mean, more or less, you know, okay. assuming they're they're compatible and stuff. But yeah, I mean, they're they're consumer bulbs, um, huh. and it's, some of them, I think, you know, I actually have. We don't have these, so I haven't played around with it personally. But I believe they're programmable, so you can set it to sort of a schedule that makes sense for you in terms of when they brighten and dim. But the idea is to sort of recreate natural light indoors as, as much as you can. Right. I've seen some people kind of in the biohacking world, even going as far as to use candlelight at night, which seems kind of extreme, but I don't know, maybe it really works and they're sleeping better than the rest of us. So who knows? Yeah. I don't know about candlelight, but that's interesting. I wonder if there are studies on that. I, I don't know of any, but there might be. Yeah. What about temperature? What does the research say about the ideal indoor temperature? The temperature is an interesting one. And so temperature, first of all, is one of those variables that really illustrates the the principle that there's no one size fits all environment that, you know, even though there are some general principles like daylight and nature seems to be great for everyone, we all have different needs and sensitivities and preferences. And, and temperature is a good example of that. I mean, for People who've worked in an office probably know about the thermostat wars where, you know, your colleague in the neighboring cubicle is hot, but you're freezing and you can't settle on a temperature. But that said, there are some interesting sort of general trends. Um, one of the things we know is that women seem to be both more sensitive to changes in temperature both in both directions and also to prefer warmer temperatures than men do. And what I think is really interesting is that it turns out it's not just a matter of comfort. So there have been studies that show that women actually perform better on cognitive tests and tasks when the air temperature is slightly higher. I don't remember the exact temperature off the top of my head, but it's at a few degrees warmer than where men perform at their peak. Mm. And Often in American offices, the thermostats are calibrated to men's preferences. And it turns out that that could actually really be impacting and affecting how well women do it at work. Hmm. Interesting. What does the research say about room design? Is there any, I know feng shui is, you know, has been a thing and there's books about that. Is that all rooted in science or is it kind of personal preference yeah, you know, that's something I haven't looked into really in detail. And I think partly it's because there has not been a lot of really rigorous investigation of it. Some of it is preference. I mean, some of it has more to do with sort of more general concepts. So like there is some research that shows that, for instance, people prefer like square offices rather than sort of longer rectangular ones simply because the square ones are more flexible and sort of open themselves up to more configuration possibilities. Um, so I think there's some of that in terms of like how 
flexible or usable spaces. Um, there's a little bit of research, one study that I know of suggesting that ceiling height might have an impact, that higher ceilings can help foster creativity. I'm not sure that's been replicated, but there are little bits here and there that are start starting to illustrate some of those concepts. But in general, there's not a lot of really rigorous research on, on some of those questions. Room design then, you know, we don't exactly know. What about space in terms of size of living space? Is there any research on that? I'm just thinking again back to, I don't live in a huge apartment now, but I have higher ceilings and more square footage than I did in New York. Is there a general kind of size that everybody should aim for if possible? Or is it kind of personal preference? It's partly personal preference. I mean, and there is a lot of research and some of the earliest research in this field had to do with crowding. And so we do know that crowding in living spaces in particular can be both stressful and psychologically um, potentially damaging. And there are a number of studies on child development and crowding and how it can affect child development. But I mean, I think the levels of crowding that researchers are talking about there are probably above what most listeners are dealing with. They're not talking about, you know, four people in a two bedroom apartment. I think it's more, you know, multiple extended family members in in a small space. So, I mean, we know that a lack of personal space and crowding at that level can be harmful, but beyond sort of a certain amount of minimum personal space for everyone, I don't think it, it right. matters. I'm quite sure as it's much. also just kind of what you get accustomed to, or you there's trade offs, right? So you live in a smaller space, but you live yeah, in absolutely. a cool city, but you don't have a back. Or, or you save money right. and that has psychological totally. benefits, I'm sure. Is there any research then about when you were talking about crowding in terms of people, I was thinking crowding in terms of clutter in a space. Have you done or heard anything about that? Yeah, so there is a bit of research on that and, you know, sort of two findings. One is that it can be a distraction, like the same way that an overheard conversation mm-hmm. can distract you if you have sort of visual clutter can can be a distraction as well. And there's also some research to suggest that that's something on which our sensitivities vary, that some people are much more likely to be distracted by clutter than others. And so, you know, that's perhaps why people in offices, some of them are unbothered by messy desks and, and offices and, and others have to have everything mm. just so. You mentioned at the beginning that you had discovered that every home kind of has its own biome. Could you touch more on that? And then also just how one home biome differ, differs from another? Yeah. So scientists have found a couple of things. One is that the Ecosystems in our home are incredibly rich and complex. There's just a lot of stuff going on there that we can't see. And I guess I always like to point out that this is not something to be inherently freaked out about. Almost all of these species that are surrounding us in our homes, these largely bacteria and and fungi are what they're finding, almost all of them are totally benign. 
Some of them are pathogens, uh, especially when you think about things like molds. We know they can trigger allergies and asthma, and that's not something you want in your home. But the vast majority are harmless, and some even seem to potentially be beneficial. So we know that kids who grow up in environments where they're exposed to a rich diversity of microbes are less likely to develop allergies and asthma and autoimmune diseases because something about being exposed to these microbes early in life seems to help train their immune systems. And so they react sort of more appropriately to to other pathogens or threats they might encounter later in life. But beyond these similarities, scientists have also found that every home sort of has a distinct collection of microbes, sort of a unique microbial fingerprint, you you can think of it as. And Part of that is because a lot of the microbes in our home are coming from us. You know, as we move around in a space, we are shedding our own personal microbes and we all have individual microbiomes. There's actually work that shows that researchers can trace the movements of someone throughout a home or figure out what room people spend the most time in simply by analyzing microbes. But then part of it is also affected by all sorts of other factors that vary from house to house. So, you know, where is the house located and what is the local climate? What is the house made of? What is the internal temperature and humidity? All of those factors can affect the microbial communities that take root inside a home. Mm. So the idea is to keep it diverse, obviously, with not with something like mold, but with the harmless pathogens exposure is good. Yeah, I mean, and it's a I recognize that it's a tricky thing because there are definitely things like mold or right now like the coronavirus that you do not want in your space. But I think we also don't want to be just pouring bleach on on every surface either because that's wiping out a huge amount of diversity and and all sorts of species that could be doing good things for us. So it's a fine line between like I absolutely endorse cleaning and, you know, trying to keep spaces or dry so mold doesn't form. But, you know, we, we could relax on some of the intense sterilization. I know a lot of your research has been based around specific spaces like schools and prisons, hospitals. So I was wondering if we could kind of touch on some of those and starting with schools, what are some things that most schools could start doing or not doing to improve their spaces? So the big thing with schools or a big thing with schools is ventilation. And that is something there's a a lot of attention to right now because of the pandemic. And you're seeing schools try to improve their HVAC systems or maybe even keep windows open during the winter. And that's really important right now. But I think what the pandemic has also highlighted is how bad ventilation has been in schools for decades, um, especially in older schools. You know, a lot of schools don't get renovated or or rebuilt that often. And so many, many schools, even the pandemic aside, students are not getting enough fresh air, which can increase their exposure to other kinds of diseases that their classmates might bring in with them, to indoor air pollutants, and as we know, can even affect their their performance and, and their learning in class. So I'm hopeful that one 
small good thing to come out of this pandemic might be some improvements in school ventilation. Mm. Yeah, when you mentioned older schools, I used to teach high school English, and I'm thinking of the classroom I used to be in where I couldn't really regulate the heat, mm-hmm. and the windows didn't open that well, so it was just super hot at times without yeah. much ventilation at all, or sometimes I was able to open the windows and the heat wasn't on, and then it was freezing, mm-hmm. but yeah, it just that's a really that's an interesting point that I never truly thought about at the time, um, but yeah, hopefully moving forward schools will pay more attention to that. Yeah, absolutely. Prisons then, is that one of the similar, is ventilation a similar issue or are there other issues in prisons? Yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of issues in prisons. I mean, the what I'd suggest for prisons is almost like a more holistic rethinking mm-hmm. of this idea that I talk about of humane design and design for human dignity that, you know, even though people are sent to prison, you know, sort of, quote unquote, as punishment. It's not for punishment, like the conditions there aren't inherently supposed to be bad and toxic and harmful. Mm. And I think a lot of prisons and other correctional facilities have been designed to be sort of deliberately punitive through the environment itself. And I would argue that You know, the loss of freedom, and not just me, others too, the loss of freedom Mm -hmm. is itself the sanction, and that really people who are incarcerated also deserve clean air and fresh air, but also just environments that treat them as human beings and not as, you know, quote unquote, offenders or felons or, or whatever the case may be. So a lot of what that looks like in practice is the same sorts of things we've been talking about, daylight, fresh air access to the natural world, but is not typically on offer in correctional facilities and not really for any good reason other than just the desire to create punitive environments. So there I just encourage designers and and developers to think about creating spaces that really respect people who are incarcerated as human beings. Mm -hmm. What about hospitals? So hospitals are actually an interesting case because that's a place where we have seen a fair amount of improvement um, over the last few decades. So a lot of the research I'm talking about or I've talked about today um, actually originated in hospitals in the 80s and 90s because that was a place where, you know, health really mattered and people first sort of got curious about, well, how are the rooms or the spaces we're providing for patients affecting their recovery and infection rates. And so we've learned a lot about hospitals and we have seen, again, there are exceptions, but by and large, we have seen hospitals move somewhat away from just a pure factory-like model of delivering care that's all about efficiency and throughput and to a bit more patient-centered care. I mean, I don't know if you've gone to a hospital that's been built recently, but they often now will have like Zen gardens and meditation rooms and um, big windows, uh, movement towards single patient rooms, which we know are really important in hospitals. That's one of the best things you can do to cut down on infection rates. So there are absolutely hospitals that don't meet those goals yet, but I think we've definitely seen improvement and hospitals are moving in the right direction. 
And then is office space kind of a similar thing where newer offices are sort of doing better than the older ones? Or what does research say about offices? Yeah, I mean, so some of the, a lot of the principles are the same. I mean, offices also, they tend to have better ventilation than schools, but they rarely have operable windows, which is something I would love to see change Mm -hmm. so people can open their windows. I mean, I think the thing that makes offices unique and that's worth paying attention to there is sort of the ideas of choice and control. I mean, the hard thing about offices is that you are designing for so many different people with different needs and sensitivities and tasks, and you can't create this generic one-size-fits-all environment. But what you can do is create sort of micro-environments. So maybe if it's an open office, there's an area with tables and desks where people can sit and be surrounded by their colleagues, but then there are some private workspaces where people can close the door and focus. And maybe there's some lounge spaces with comfortable seating that's good for brainstorming sessions. And so you create these different types of environments within the office. And then the second part of that, and an important part of that is actually empowering employees to be able to move throughout the day and, and to work sort of whatever suits them. But that's one way to get around some of the challenges of office design. I know there was the huge shift from more closed off office spaces to these big open environments. I'm sure that was based on research somewhat or what was really the push for that? Yeah, that was, I wish it not. (laughs) It it was not based on research. Um, It was based on a combination of good and tensions, those being, you know, a desire to encourage more collaboration and communication and sort of teamwork by putting everyone out in the same area. And it was also driven strongly by economic factors, like Mm. open offices are just cheaper and they're more flexible. And so if you're a growing company and you're not sure how many employees you're going to have in six months or a year, or if you want to just have a smaller office footprint, open offices make a lot of sense. The research shows that almost every aspect of open offices is bad for employee productivity, health, and morale. Um, So they have very little to recommend them, except that they are cheap and flexible, which is, of course, what what employers value. That's interesting, because you see, you'll walk into one or you'll see pictures and they look so beautiful and they usually have these high ceilings. But I've never worked in a space like that, but I can imagine it would be very distracting. Yeah, it is. I mean, I've worked in a space like that and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't even cubicles. It was like long shared tables and we were journalists. And so people are on the phone a lot and it it's distracting. It's It would not be my first choice of office environment. Right. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. ThriveMarket is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything, delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. 
To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. As so many of us right now are setting up our work from home environments, our offices and our homes, if you will, we've mentioned fresh air, light, bringing nature in. Are there any other recommendations that you have, especially during this COVID shelter in place time for people to kind of make their homes more desirable? I mean, I think the one other thing we haven't touched on that's maybe relevant there is sort of personal space or or privacy, which, you know, I know is difficult if you're sharing space with others and potentially also have kids at home who might be interrupting. And, you know, I'm not, uh, deluded enough to say that like it's possible to create a perfect zone of privacy and concentration at home. But I think there are ways to potentially get creative about it, even if you don't have a dedicated, you know, office with a door that closes. So by putting up a screen or repositioning furniture in a way so that it sort of blocks what you're doing or what everyone else in your home is doing from your workspace or, um, Even things like we know auditory privacy can be helpful to people. So putting on headphones, even if it's just playing white noise or those nature sounds we were talking about can help create sort of a a dedicated office mental space and sort of zone of privacy. So ways to carve out a little bit of workspace for yourself, however you can do that is likely to be helpful too. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. What are some questions you still have about how indoor environments affect our health? Oh, there are so many. Um, You know, so a lot of what, there has been a lot more research in recent years, and that's part of what spurred the book. But a lot of it, particularly at the level of sort of health, and here I'm thinking of the work on like microbes and indoor air pollution, has been not rudimentary, but sort of fairly preliminary. So like there have been studies that show like what are the microbes in our homes? And there have been studies that are beginning to measure the levels of different pollutants that are generated by different products and activities. But it's sort of still at that census level. So there's a lot left to learn about how these things actually affect us. Like how is this chemical my couch giving off actually affecting my health? And is it giving it off at levels that are high enough to affect my health? And how does it interact with chemicals that are being given off by other things in my home? So a lot of those more complex interactions sort of remain to be defined. Mm. That Yeah, that's really interesting. I interviewed an expert on environmental toxins, and he was talking a lot about the chemicals you're mentioning, especially ones we don't think about, maybe even from dry cleaning. Mm-hmm. Um, So his recommendation was even just bring your dry cleaning home and leave it outside Mm. out of the plastic for, I think he said 24 hours and just let the fumes kind of off gas outside of your home rather than putting it in the plastic in your closet. So all the fumes stay. And then when you take the plastic off, they're just released into your home environment. Um, But it was really interesting, just some of his practical tips. I'll put a link if anybody's listening and they want to find that episode, I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. So you can just click through and easily find that one. Um, but yeah, that, I think that is really interesting as well as the, the couch, like you said, I don't know, I was not aware for so many years that the different chemicals they put on 
materials and carpets and even paint, right? I mean, it's all just chemicals. (laughs) And I mean, our electronics, all of our personal care products and you know, most of the chemicals aren't well understood on their own. And then what's really not understood is, you know, they're not off gassing into a vacuum. There are a bunch of other chemicals there and we're starting to understand that they're reacting with each other. And so like, what is that creating? Like, it's just this whole, you know, Pandora's box that we're just beginning to crack open. Right. And as you said earlier, just unregulated, just right, right. nobody knows. <laughs> wow. That, well, that's really interesting. I ask each of my guests, my guests a final question, which is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Hmm. Well, I mean, if we're talking about spaces, I think taking them seriously is the first step because I think for so long we have ignored our indoor spaces, at least in terms of their power to improve our lives. And I did that too. I mean, even though I was indoorsy, I was spending so much time inside that I sort of took my indoor spaces for granted. And I never really thought about what role they might play in my life or whether there were changes I could make to them to improve my life. And so I think the first step in sort of making the health investment in that regard is be to sort of look critically at the space around you and to think about, you know, is this working for me and what is working for me and what isn't? And to really try to look with new eyes at at these very familiar spaces. Yeah, I love that idea. Where can listeners follow and find you after this episode? The best place is probably my personal website, which is emilyanthis.com. That has a lot more information about the book. It also has links to my other pieces on all sorts of topics. I'm also on Twitter at at emilyanthis. And uh, the last name is fairly uncommon, so it's it's pretty Googleable. Um, all sorts of stuff w- will pop up if, if you plug that in. Okay, awesome. I'll put a link to your website and then to your Twitter as well great in the show notes so people can easily find you. And I'm just so grateful for your time today. I learned so much and I can't wait for listeners to hear this because again, this is such a unique topic and I haven't spoken to anyone about it yet. So thank you again for your time, Emily. Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.